Well, take out your Bibles and uh, find the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. Um, one of the things that <clears throat> I, I did a series on sex about four years ago, and one of the things that I learned is that I can step in it very easily uh, and not having intended to do so. So I want to make a caveat this morning. Um, over the next number of weeks, uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, a lot of things that are aberrations of uh, uh, of God's design for sexuality and uh, lest I fail to make it clear uh, maybe even today um, uh, tried to make it clear last Sunday that God's plan for sexual expression is exclusively between a married man and a married woman however we acknowledge that many people deviate from that plan and, and, and maybe even uh, some or even many of us in terms of premarital sex which we'll be talking about next Sunday. And so if you hear me referencing things like that, like I'm about to do, don't, uh, don't conclude, oh, Pastor Keith thinks it's okay to have sex before marriage. That's not the case. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is when people do uh, express their sexuality in ungodly ways, it has repercussions all down, uh, typically all down through, through life. That doesn't mean there's not forgiveness, doesn't mean there's not grace, doesn't mean there's not restoration. But everything that we do typically affects everything we are down through the life. And so I want to tell you the story first about a woman named Kathy. Uh, Kathy and her boyfriend were um, regularly sexually intimate before they got married. And um, Kathy assumed everything was okay, and then they got married. And there was no intimacy on the wedding night or the next night or the next night. In fact, over the years, they would typically be intimate only about 10 times or less, which the authorities describe that pretty much as a sexless marriage. That's the criterion they use. 10 times, uh, uh, sexual intimacy 10 times a year or less, sexless marriage. And Kathy didn't really know what was going on. She didn't understand why that was the case. And she um, did, uh, tried a lot of things to make it different in their home. She did remember a time, maybe after they were married about three years, when her husband said kind of an offhand remark one day. He said, I've, I've, I've never really understood what the big deal is about sex. So Kathy was trying everything. She would read uh, all kinds of articles on sex tips, uh, books on how to be a, a better lover. She thought if she was just sexier or thinner or maybe a better cook, she could rekindle interest in her husband that didn't seem to work. Finally, year 11 in their marriage, she persuaded her husband to see a physician, a urologist specifically, and discovered that he had very low levels of testosterone. Now, testosterone is one of three sex hormones in our bodies. Uh, it's present in both male and female bodies, but the male body produces far greater amounts of testosterone, typically in female. In fact, anywhere from 8 to 20 times as much testosterone, which is an indicator, guys, why your sex drive typically is far outstrips your wife's. After the third visit to the urologist, Kathy was sitting on the bed <clears throat> reading a book. Her husband came home, went over past her, pulled open the drawer to her nightstand, dropped a bottle of pills in it, and said, that's Viagra. From now on, when you want sex, just ask for it. And he's kicked the door shut and stalked out of the room. 
Kathy realized uh, that things weren't going well, and she never asked him to be sexually intimate again, and 18 months later, their marriage ended. Now, I tell you that story um, to, for one thing, to tell you that um, it's, not a, it's not always going the same direction, men to women, uh, women to men, in terms of sexual interest and sexual disinterest. Um, also tell you that because the sexual intimacy part of a marriage relationship is extremely crucial. And yet it's widely believed in our culture that marriage, even though we said last week that God's design is for sexual expression, is within the covenant bonds of a husband and wife. But it's widely believed that marriage is to sex what water is to fire, that it puts it out. And that's a tragedy. Now, it's true that it's uh, true that for many marriages there is a diminishing interest in sexuality after marriage, but it's not the institution that's to blame. It is the change of uh, of life, the way things happen after marriage, that introduces that kind of oh, this is different than it used to be. For one, there is a, a massive change of how you live life. Dating years, so people that are sexually active in dating years, uh, they're, they're fr- it's just you can have the connection with your partner uh, without any responsibility, without any kind of other pressures in your life. That's just like the, the opportune playground for you. And then you get married and all of a sudden life changes. Now, when you're dating, you're just with your, uh, that person on the, in the happy times. You have some conflicts, but it's not the same way as once you live together and you have changing responsibilities. And there is that factor, and this is especially true of us men. I was talking with somebody about this uh, Friday. Is that you know how men are. When, when we're pursuing a woman, we're like a hunter in the woods. Right? And when we get her, and when, when is that? At the marriage altar when we say, I do. And, and women wonder after they get married, what, what happened to that guy I used to date? And I tell them, well, he's not around anymore. He's your husband now. And he got you. And so now he's moved on to other things. You know, he's, he's, he's your prey to him. You're a quarry to him. And once he has you, he's off to do other things. So now he has his career advancement to preoccupy himself with you if you start a family you get have kids and and you have a different relationship with that child than he does because you've been carrying uh, him or her in your womb for nine months and and have this real connectivity and you get up in the middle of the night to feed this child once it's born and so forth and your husband's off, off here doing his thing with career you're doing your thing with children and all of a sudden you realize wow what we used to have is we, we just we don't have anymore your priorities are shifting. Your responsibilities are starting to come in to bear. There's another reason that um, married sex tends to not look like uh, premarital sex. Couples are having it. And, and that is that it's, it seems like when couples are having this sort of relationship outside of marriage, that sex is automatic. We don't have to work at it. We don't have to try. Now, my unprofessional opinion about that is that that's an illusion. So, for example, the story I told you about Kathy and her husband, her boyfriend, she didn't know it, but the whole time they were being sexually intimate during their dating years, he was faking it. 
He was doing it because he knew that's what she wanted and he didn't want to replay his hand that he really wasn't that interested. And we have this idea. I think it's, it's true for a lot of reasons. Pornography certainly hasn't helped any. Have this idea that sex is always going to be automatic, number one, and number two, amazing. Always going to be automatic and amazing. And I want to try to poke holes in both of those beliefs this morning. Now, the Bible says that when we're familiar with Satan's schemes, he cannot outwit us. And the converse is true. That when we are unfamiliar with his schemes, he can outwit us. And excuse me, I'm convinced that one of the main ways that he sabotages marriage is by monkeying with the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. There's a local uh, professional counselor here in the area, she's a Christian, who did a, a survey, I assume uh, because she's a Christian, I assume that most of these couples that she surveyed were Christians as well. But she surveyed a 1,000 couples. And as somebody who's intrigued by statistics, that's a far bigger sampling than a lot of studies show. She said of those 1,000, of those 1,000 couples, 80% of them, so 800 couples, admitted that they have sexual problems in their relationship and their marriage. I was talking with Betty last night. We were talking about this. I said, my guess is that most couples that struggle in the area of sexuality think that they're the minority report rather than the majority report. So wash your ears out with that. It's very, very common. And I have a theory about why that is. Apart from the spiritual thing, because I, Satan doesn't leave his signature in sex problems in marriage, but make no mistake, his grimy fingerprints are all over those problems. And what do people do? Next week, we're going to talk about premarital sex. We're going to also talk about adultery. Uh, so some people say, I'm, I'm going to find somebody that's more sexually compatible with me, and out the door they go. But far more, far larger percentage of couples simply say, uh, I'm going to stick it out, but I'm miserable. I'm going to nag him or her. Uh, I'm going to just, just kind of live with it. There's this kind of like low-grade fever emotionally that I have. I want to say today that that doesn't need to be the case. In fact, I want to try to argue that God doesn't want that to be the case in your marriage. Now, um, a number of years ago, uh, nine, I think to be exact, my, one of my sons and I uh, built a pergola in our patio. You know what a pergola is? It's like a rectangle structure. It's, I think mine is eight by 12 so you got a pillar in each corner, and then there's a lattice work over top um, and lets the sun through, but it kind of gives a little bit of protection, so we have a table, patio table and chairs underneath it. And we built it out, because I'm too cheap, uh, we built it out of outdoor wood instead of plastic, which would last a lot longer. But outdoor wood's supposed to be treated, you know, and it protects against bugs and it protects against rot. Uh, it doesn't. So last year, um, one Saturday, uh, our son Cameron and daughter-in-law Brittany were up, and they were talking uh, with Betty in the dining room, and all of a sudden there was this loud crash. 
And uh, over top uh, the pergola, we have a paddle fan and a light over top of the table. And the wood that it was mounted on had rotted through and crashed. Down came the paddle fan and the light somehow didn't break. And so I started inspecting um, pergola and found all kinds of rot. See this? Isn't that cool? Eight years, just eight years after it, um, when put it up, all kinds of rot. Almost every bracket had rot on it. Um, I had to replace uh, three beams across the top. And um, why is that? It's not permanent. Just doesn't have the kind of staying power. I remember when I was uh, 11 years old, my parents built a new house. I have no idea why I remember stupid things like this. I can't remember what I did yesterday in most cases. But I remember my mom and dad wrestling and agonizing. Are we going to put wood siding on the house or aluminum siding? This was before vinyl. And uh, they finally decided they're going to put up wood siding. And um, my f- so that meant that my father is going to have to get out the ladder um, about every six, seven years, climb up on the roof and all over the house and, you know, sand it where the paint is peeling, sand it with, uh, across the good part and so that he can paint over it. And all kinds of maintenance has to be done. Last time he did that, he was like 76 years old. And I drove in a driveway, and he's up on the, he's got a ladder on the roof up to the next part of the house. He's 76. And I yelled at him. Probably wasn't good, but I'm like, don't you ever do that again. You call me the next time you need to paint the house. Why? Wood, wood siding needs maintenance. Now, a couple years ago, uh, we resided our house uh, with this. Vinyl siding. I love vinyl siding. No paint, no caulk, no maintenance. You don't have to worry about the bugs and so forth. What's the point? I worry that many of us who have been born again and whose marriages are supposed to represent the glory of Christ think that our sexual relationship is vinyl siding instead of wood siding, i.e., no maintenance needed. It'll just happen. It's just automatic. It's mechanical. Part A goes with part B. What more is there to it? So the whole morning is going to be about trying to get us to think differently about that, to think about our sex life as wood siding rather than vinyl siding. And here's the thing. Those of you who own homes... And last week I I, I talked about, during this series, I want to have us think about uh, or think in the imagery of a house, that our sexual relationship with our spouse is like a house. Last week we talked about how um, it's like a fort in one way and it keeps others out, and it's like a fountain in that it nourishes those that are inside. And I wonder how many of us who own homes would say we we pay far more attention uh, time and effort to maintenance on our the house that we pay taxes on than we do this house that God has given us to uh, bring us joyful intimacy 
as well as portray the glory of Christ. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 3 to 5. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your self-control. Let's ask God for his help. Fathers, we have this conversation, uh, a, a frank conversation this morning. I pray that our eyes would be open to spiritual realities in something that we tend to think of as strictly physical. To understand how you mean to use the sexual relationship between a husband and wife, not only for their delight, but for your glory and for the proclamation of the good news. Uh, I pray that um, if we come to this conversation with kind of uh, resistance and objections, like we don't want to have this frank of a conversation because this is private and we shouldn't be talking about things, Lord, that you would just kind of nudge us um, maybe one degree or two degrees further than where we're at, at least if you have something to say to us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide my words, that he'd be able to speak uh, through me when he can, and in spite of me when he must. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the sexual creed of many of the people that we live around, work with, go to school with, sexual creed, this is standard sexual creed, is serve me. In other words, people who are involved in intimate relations are asking their partners to serve them now this doesn't work and even christians have tried this it, it, it doesn't work why is that the case well first of all we are all sinners we're all broken sinners and sinners tend to resist demands sinners tend to resist demands and so when one sexual partner demands that the other person sexually serve him or her doesn't work because we're we're broken sinners and sex ends up becoming um, a leverage and so it's used to offer rewards and it's used to extend punishment if someone is insistent that the other person serve them that's how sex is often going to um, it's going to kind of descend into that i'll give it to you if you do what i want i'll withhold it if you don't also, this approach doesn't tend to work because it ignores certain realities, such as mismatched libidos. We talked earlier about the whole issue of testosterone. Uh, it's amazing to me. I learned about this uh, many years ago. I learned about these different testosterone levels. But I have been searching for verification for that for the last three years. And I don't find it. And I think I've figured out why. Because the narrative in our culture is that men and women are exactly alike. They're identical. Not that they're equal anymore, 
They're identical. And so I went around my research in the last couple weeks a different way. I started looking up um, what, what are the testosterone levels typically for a man at different ages? What are the testosterone levels uh, for a, a typical woman at different ages? And lo and behold, I found the validation of the evidence. But if you try to find those compare, compared on the Internet, you're not going to find it. Why? Because the, the increasing desire to minimize differences between men and women. Listen, brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. That is a diminution of God's glorious plan. Women, you should find delight in being a woman. Men, you should find delight in being a man. And we should look at each other with profound reverence at what God has done. And delight in the differences. Because this is a good gift from God. But mismatched, mismatched libidos. And guys, unfortunately, too many of us have been shaped and molded by pornography and quasi-pornography, stuff that's on the way, that we get the impression that the wife that we say I do to at the marriage altar is going to have that same sex drive as we do. And she's probably not. Now, I've known instances where the reverse is true, just like the story I shared at the outset, and it's the women that are frustrated. In fact, it's interesting, Google um, Analytics says that more women Google sexless marriage than men do. And so, again, more of this narrative that we're, we're all the same. But in most cases, a man is going to have a far stronger sex drive than a woman. Now, some of that may change at certain stages in life, especially in uh, late 30s, early 40s. There's some as a, a man's typical sex drive declines a bit, a woman's goes up a bit. Uh, but in general, that's going to be different. There are mismatched libidos between men and women. Sometimes there's a mismatched libido not because of things like testosterone, but because of the way the partners see the marriage. And what I'm talking about is conflict in the marriage, tension in the marriage. And a man, for his part, may not see that tension as a, a something that would interfere with or interrupt the sexual relationship. A woman, because of how uniquely God has made her, looks at it entirely differently. And so, guys, if, you, if things are not healthy in your relationship with your wife, you should not expect her to be as receptive as you'd like her to be with your, sexual, with your sexual desires. When you have a problem in your marriage, you see that as, you put that as in a category over here, and your sexual relationship is over here, and your wife sees those two as intimately related. This approach of serve me also doesn't work because uh, for some people in a marriage, there's a great uh, uh, a number of, perhaps one or a number of emotional barriers. So one partner might have been sexually abused and that creates problems in the relationship. Or there's been previous sexual sin that creates guilt. One of the things I've observed over the years is the, uh, how long the legs are of sexual guilt. And people often think if I had I was sexually sinning before I got married, I get married, and that's all over. You'd be amazed how many decades that guilt can haunt people. And believers, you need to learn about grace. And then when Jesus says, I forgive you, he's not saying, I'll think about it. 
or you do penance and then I'll forgive you. He's saying, I really do forgive you because it's my blood that paid for your sin, not your improved behavior. Um, anxiety can interfere with the sexual relationship. Depression, body image, and this is especially strong with women. I don't like how I look, and so to take my clothes off for my husband is, is a problem. It, it, it creates all kinds of conflicted feelings within me. Or shame. If people have been brought up in homes where uh, either what was said or what wasn't said co- communicates that, this is, that sex is dirty, that can be inhibiting in the sexual relationship. Physical barriers um, might be some sort of disability. It might be, uh, especially for women, after childbirth, there, there can be pelvic pain um, for up to a, a year. So there could be physical barriers. So someone in a marriage who demands, serve me, can run into a lot of problems. I want to tell you what I think the Bible's sexual creed is. Let me serve you. Let me serve you. Now this text that we just read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And the NLT reads, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The word needs is not in the original Greek text. In fact, the word that you might have in, depending what version you have, is probably not in there either. I think the ESV says duty. Um, that might be as close to the word that's in there. The word is ophile. It's kind of like, I'm going to teach you some Greek this morning. You all right with that? Ophile. So it's like you're walking down the street, you see a piece of beef, and it surprises you, and you go, oh, filet. So you want to try it with me? On, on three, one, two, three, oh, filet. The word means debt. Debt. So that would mean the husband should fulfill his debt to his wife. The wife should fulfill her debt to her husband. I pay you what I owe you. That, in other words, that means when a husband and wife stands at the marriage altar and says, I do, they are at that moment obligating themselves to their partner sexually. And Paul says, lest there be any confusion about exactly what I mean, I also mean that the wife is to give authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. The autonomy that we had about our bodies prior to marriage is over. I am yours now. You are mine now. Now, the inevitable question that this raises is, does that mean that I have to be intimate with my spouse every time he or she desires? You tell me. You tell me. There's another question that comes out of that, and that is, do I have to, does that mean that I have to agree to things that I am uncomfortable with? And the answer to that question is no. And again, we are conditioned 
and shape men and women by a culture in which, um, by a porn, uh, pornographic culture that shapes everything else. And what I mean by that is not only are we shaped by pornography, but the influences of pornography that make their way into our books, make their way into our uh, movies, make their way into articles on the internet, make their way into the way we think. To such a degree that we are increasingly, as a human race, losing our capacity to distinguish between what is appropriate and what is not. When um, my wife and I have only been married a few years, I remember our pastor saying, anything that a husband and a wife agree on sexually is okay. I still use that line when I'm doing premarital counseling, but you know what? I've had to add something. Unless it involves another person. Anything the two of you agree on is okay, but not including another person. And I will actually tell um, typically wives, if your husband starts asking you for some very weird things, I'm not talking about some different things, but some things that curl your hair, you might want to start asking him some hard questions about you looking at porn. Now, the flip side of that is that uh, for some of us who have been very um, sheltered in that our parents didn't talk to us about sex, and we really don't, maybe we haven't done much reading, we don't know much about sex, that we think anything other than X is out of bounds. And I still agree with my pastor. Anything the two of you agree on okay that's the kicker because design sex relationship between husbands and wives to be a blessing to be pure to be holy not degrading then the answer is no you do not need to do everything your spouse demands of you sexually now the gospel root of this idea of freely giving ourselves to our spouses in a uh, indulging way, the gospel root of that, specifically Christian sexual ethic, is Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, I did not, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, do you know what it says? To serve. For the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, he was speaking about them serving. Even the Son of Man, even I, even the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we as husbands and wives, when we say to our spouses, honey, let me serve you. That's being shaped by our Redeemer. And then the other piece that we talked about last week, the portrayal of the gospel in the marriage relationship. If indeed, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, if, if that says what we understand it to say, that marriage is a, is a metaphor, it is a picture of the reality 
of the love affair between Christ and the church, then that means that things that nourish or undermine that marriage are also part of reflecting this gospel of Jesus' love for his church. And if that's the case, then simply letting the sexual relationship kind of run its course willy-nilly, we pay no attention to it, we figure we have vinyl siding, there's no need to really work at it, is in effect undermining the picture that God has for our marriages to reflect to the world. So what do you do? Husband, wife. If you have a um, sexual drive that outshines your partners, what do you do? What are the two of you to do? A Christian asked this of uh, John Piper about a year and a half ago. He did a, a, a little podcast that I thought was so wonderful. And he re- referenced a verse that I want you to turn to. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. And I'm going to read this in the ASV because of a key word in there that I think helps drive the point home. Dr. Piper compared the the passage that we just read, that our bodies belong to the other person and we are to fulfill the marital debt, compared that passage with this passage. Now, this is written not primarily to husbands and wives about sex. It's written to Christians about dealing with other Christians. One of the things I've tried to drive home over the years to married couples is if you are both believers, then everything that's written in the New Testament about two believers, about how they're to relate to other believers is also written to Christian husbands and Christian wives about how we're to relate to our spouses. And that's the case in point here. Love one another with brotherly love, brotherly affection. So my wife is not only my wife, she's also my sister in Christ. I'm not only her husband, I'm her brother in Christ. So we love one another in the body with brotherly affection, and that's going to be true in our marriage relationship as well outdo one another in showing honor outdo one another in showing honor and 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 dr piper says so you've got the one here who's got a stronger sex drive and the one here who's uh, got a lesser sex drive and and both of these callings are upon both partners fulfill sexual debt to your spouse and outdo each other in showing honor. And so the one with the greater sex drive is, is trying to be honoring to the one who's got the lesser one and saying, okay, uh, I understand you're tired or I understand that you had a long night with our daughter last night. And we don't need to make love tonight. Maybe, could we think about maybe putting it on the calendar? We'll talk about that in a minute. Put it on the calendar for Saturday. So he's considerate, let me serve you. He's considerate of her. Meanwhile, she's saying, no, 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 I, 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 wanna, I want to serve you. Let me serve you. You see, I love the word outdo in that text in the ESV. Outdo each other. If our sexual ethic, if our sexual creed is different than the world's, do you see how, how wonderfully it can nourish a Christian marriage relationship and instead of people complaining about what is not 
reveling in what is. Now there's one more piece that I've been touching on along the way. And that is there's not just a component of let me serve you, but let us as a couple serve him. Because as we said last week, the sexual relationship is not just biological or mechanical. It is ultimately spiritual. Which is why Paul says the only reason you as a husband and wife should take a break from your sexual relationship is for another spiritual purpose. So for a season where you're going to dedicate yourselves to prayer, you're, you're in, intensively praying for somebody's salvation maybe. Maybe you have a, a, a child that's going off the rails and you're going to intensively pray for them and for a restoration and for a hope for them. But it's only going to be for a season. It's only going to be for a spiritual purpose. And then he wants you to come back together. Why? So that Satan cannot tempt you because you're human. Let us serve him. So number, letter A, don't deprive each other. Don't deprive each other. Secondly, don't view sex as simply one more facet of your marriage. It's just like, like when I do premarital counseling, we talk about things like conflict resolution. We, talked about, we talk about communication. We talk about how to deal with in-laws. We talk about finances. And we talk about sex. And it's easy to look at sex as simply, this is one more facet of the kind of life we have to navigate as a husband and wife. And yet it is the one thing in marriage, the one thing in marriage that makes the two one. Right? Genesis 2.24, we looked at last week. A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become what? One what? One flesh. It's not the marriage license that makes two one. It's the consummation of the commitment to one another in the physical sexual union that makes the two one. So don't look at your sexual union as, ah, once we get our finances squared away, you know, once we learn how to communicate better, well, maybe we can work on the sexual relationship. I've uh, come to take into speaking about the sexual union as the glue that holds marriage together over the last number of years just because I see it being so central in what God intends for husbands and wife, uh, wives and how to, to nourish them, their sexual intimacy. <clears throat> and lastly, we're saying let us serve God because our marriage is, as I pointed to in Ephesians 5, our marriage is evangelistic. In other words, people see... <laughs> If you've got a crummy marriage and you people around you know that you're Christians, they not only draw conclusions about your marriage, they draw conclusions about your faith. Why? Because marriage is the metaphor to depict the love affair between Christ and the church. So they're going to draw conclusions about your faith if you have a crummy marriage and if you have a crummy sex life you're going to have a crummy marriage. And it's going to poorly evangelize the people around you. It's going to, it's not going to engender praiseworthiness from the body of believers that are looking on at your marriage. So whether or not you pay attention to your sexual relationship in your marriage 
is going to have an evangelistic effect or a non-evangelistic effect, a praiseworthy effect or a non-praiseworthy effect to those around you. All right, some practical application points. So, number one, I'm trying to convince you that your sex relationship is wood, not vinyl. Meaning, you need to do some maintenance. And <clears throat> first thing I would suggest is that you go to your spouse and say, honey, when it comes to our sex relationship, I'm going to put you first. Let me serve you. By the way, can you just imagine that conversation? Some of you don't talk about sex ever, and I'll touch on that in a minute. But can you imagine having that conversation where you actually do that? The kind of impact that can have instead of demanding this? I'm going to put you first. And to, as part of that conversation, say, we're going to make our sexual relationship and our marriage a new priority. A new priority. We're not going to have it get the leftovers and have us be frustrated and tense. We never talk about it. And that's the next thing. If you're going to make it a priority, you have to learn how to have conversations about sex. As I, as I said last week, I, I didn't grow up being taught anything about sex. And every step of progress that Betty and I have made over the years has come through hard work. And probably the most difficult piece for us was just learning to talk about sex. And so you're going to start a conversation. You say, well, how did I do that? I don't even, I don't even know where to begin. The easiest way is to find an uh, article on the Internet, get a good Christian book on sex, and read a chapter or read stuff together and then start to ask each other questions out of what's been raised in the book. And if you have a sermon notes a copy, you have a list of some recommended resources on there. I've got six books listed, uh, Intimate Issues by Two Women. That's especially for women, uh, Dillo and Pintus. Sheet Music, which is the book that Pastor Charlie and I use with engaged couples, um, Dr. Kevin Lehman. These are all Christian books written by Christian authors. Um, and sheet Music is so good. Um, we actually have a copy of it above our bed at home. Um, it, it's a, we have the couples read the first four chapters about four weeks before they get married, and then we tell them we're not allowed to read anything else in it until they go on their honeymoon. They can take it along in their honeymoon and have fun with it. It's that uh, explicit and gives you ideas. Uh, the Gift of sex, or sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, C.J. Mahaney, tiny little book. It's especially for men. The Gift of Sex, which, which uh, Penner and Penner and A Celebration of Sex is exhaustive. Um, th these are physicians. They, they have all the anatomical stuff in there. They have things about questions like sex positions and so forth, uh, but all from a Christian vantage point. Uh, the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. I've not read that one, but I uh, understand it's good. Um, since I'm not a girl, I don't read that. Uh, another uh, suggestion is don't hesitate to utilize professionals. Don't hesitate to get help. Um, physicians, counselors, pastors, therapists, that might be especially important if you came up uh, through a childhood with a skewed idea of sex or if there's been past sexual abuse or sin, physical pain, and so forth. Don't hesitate to use professionals. And lastly, 
Are you ready for this? If you've got a pen, write this down. I'm serious. If you've got a pen, write this one thing down this morning. It's a really short word. Indulge. Indulge. Uh, be a student of your spouse. This is one of the foundational teachings in my premarital counseling. I say, be a student of your wife. Uh, be a student of your husband. Learn who he is, what, uh, what he's like, and, and how he's shaped, how she's shaped. Do that in the area of sex. Be a student of your spouse. We all know what we want. Do you know what she wants? Do you know what he wants and doesn't want? Learn as well what they're not into as well as what they're into. Uh, secondly, schedule. <laughs> schedule. I know this is counterintuitive. And we're like, schedule sex? That's really like weird. Especially if you were intimate before you got married. Um, you're like, we never had a schedule sex. You know, I couldn't keep my hands off of her. I know that. But things change. And they especially change after the children come along. Can I get an amen? I guess not. They do change, don't they? Life changes. And you and I tend to schedule things in our appointment books. <clears throat> we have this meeting and we, we're going to go here and we're going to go there. My guess is that in probably every one of your calendars, I would have a tough time finding anything about sexual intimacy. It's interesting. I, I, I read an um, article a couple weeks ago by a psychologist who says that uh, I think it was like cl close to 80%, upper 70% of the <clears throat> couples that she worked with that were uh, really struggling sexually, almost 80% of them said, we're too busy for sex. We're too busy. And you know what it's like. It's not just that you have uh, meetings and you have appointments and you have outings and you have picnics. But then when you get home from them, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you don't have time or energy for each other. That's a mistake. And so my wife and I actually uh, did this. Right? I was going to say, are we still doing this? Uh, we did this. And it, was, it worked out wonderfully. The person who is more sexually driven knows that there is a time coming. The person who's less, less sexually driven um, uh, has some anticipation. It actually can serve to heighten uh, 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 sexual interest. It's really a good, good thing. So schedule. Lastly, I don't know if I, I made this word up. Sex experiment. Sex experiment. Don't be afraid to try some new things. Don't let your sex life become ho-hum and boring. Again, especially after you've been married uh, for some time, don't just say, this is as good as it gets. Try some different things. Um, by the way, as a resource, uh, not just these books or magazine articles or online articles, but try the Bible. Try the Bible. Say, hmm? There's a book in the Old Testament that Jewish men were not allowed to read until they were 30 years of age. Do you know what it is? Yeah, Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And the reason they weren't allowed to read it, and you are, and your kids are, is we don't know Hebrew poetry well enough to peel behind it and see what they are saying. You would be surprised. 
So get a very uh, easy to read version of the Bible and read the Song of Songs together. Who knows what could happen? You might even find some things in there to experiment with. All right, that's enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this gift that you have entrusted to men and women who say, I do. I would be the first to admit that we probably haven't done near the job with it that you hoped we would for a thousand different reasons. And I want to pray for all brothers and sisters here this morning who are married, for all of us, that we would see, a, perhaps get a little bit of a glimpse of the greater potential that could, can exist in this facet of our relationship. That we would, maybe there's people here who've really been despairing about their sexual relationship. Maybe so much so that they're even thinking about, I need to find somebody else that I'm more compatible with. First of all, I pray that you would crush that satanic instinct. And second of all, that they would see the, um, the hope, not in an, another relationship, but in this relationship, that you are so much in favor of this uh, aspect of the marriage, that you will work with them, that you will, through prayer and through their taking um, maybe awkward steps into conversations with their spouse, that you would show them exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all they could think or imagine for the proclamation of the gospel in their marriage and for the satisfaction and the intimacy that you meant sex to provide in marriage. We pray this in Jesus' name.